and welcome to Women in Confidence with Vanessa Murphy, the podcast that discusses all things to do with confidence at work. This is a podcast for women who want to know more about where their confidence supports them and where it can let them down in their careers. I'm your host, Vanessa Murphy, confidence coach, HR expert and podcaster. Every fortnight, this podcast will introduce you to women who have interesting stories to tell around confidence. Through their stories, you will realise that even women who appear to have it all have had confidence wobbles. But by listening to them, you will take away what they do to remain top of the confidence game. I'm delighted to welcome Susie Campbell to the show today. Susie left her life in the UK and the Royal Navy with a three-month-old and a three-year-old in tow to begin a journey halfway around the world in Australia alongside her military husband. With no family or friends, nor actually ever having been to Australia before, she swiftly recognised that connections would be crucial if she were to forge a new career here. With no clue as to what that career may be, Susie simply began doing what she did best, spotting opportunities to help and make a difference. With a lifelong belief in the power of building relationships, Susie quickly found ways her skills could support Australian businesses. Using her very down-to-earth approach to marketing and PR, a skill she learned in a very hands-on way, Hullabaloo PR was born. It's designed to help businesses market it themselves organically through creating a great customer experience, building local connections and partnerships, and through the use of traditional media. Susie firmly believes that businesses do better when they work together and engaging with their community is key to their success. Well, thank you, Susie, for joining me on my podcast. Really nice to have you here. My pleasure. Um, I've never actually told you this, and I probably should have told you this prior to to the start of the conversation. So when I first met you back, I reckon, in about 1999, when we were both serving in the Navy, I was actually quite intimidated by you because you're very tall, also taller than me. Um, You were way much fitter than me. Um, But also you you did absolutely exude what I would call now confidence. Um, And I don't mean to embarrass you, but... um, and I just thought I'd share that with you because you've always epitomised to me, and one of the reasons why I got you on this podcast is because you stand out as a confident woman. Do you feel that way? Do you feel confident? <laughs> it's very funny that you should say that because you are not the first person who has told me that. Um, and I've always kind of put it down to my stature. I am very tall, like six foot tall. I'm broad. Um, and so for a female, I guess that could be intimidating. Do I feel confident? Um, I guess I have always been a very independent person right from a child and that came through circumstance through my childhood Um, and I've had to you know fight for my corner and fight for where I've got so I guess um, I, I, I don't feel I'm always confident but I guess I'm good at putting that front on because I've always done that to try and get where I've got to but yes, apparently I am intimidating, <laughs> but I seriously don't mean to be. <laughs> so you say as you were a child, you're independent. I mean, as a child, you don't always know you were confident, but how would you describe your personality when you were younger? I was, I was a very sort of chatty, sociable child. Um But growing up, I had, uh, and it was told to me many years later, in fact, in my reports in the Navy, that I have a very strong sense of right and wrong. And I've always had that. 
And what that did as a child was meant that if I knew something wasn't right or I believed it wasn't right, or if I didn't feel that somebody in my social circle was doing the right thing, I didn't have a lot of time for it. And I would almost chop it and protect myself and stick with what I felt was right, even if it went against the grain of what everyone else was doing. I was definitely not a sheep. Um, And in some cases, that kind of isolated me a little bit. But I was steadfast in the fact that, no, I don't want to get involved in that or I don't want to do that. This is what I believe. And this is the path I'm taking. Um, And some people saw that as aloof. Some people saw that as, um, you know, Susie thinks she's better than other people or different. But it was just my sense of this is what's right for me. And I'm going to do that because I don't want to, I don't know, fall into something that I don't want to get involved in. And I've carried on that. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, So how did you know then that joining the Navy was the right thing for you to do? Because you you came across very determined and you've got a purpose and you're very driven. How did you know then that joining the Royal Navy was the right career choice for you? I'd wanted to do it for a very long time. I had an uncle who was in the Navy. I'd got lots of family connections with the military. and. I and and sport was a big part of since early childhood I'd always been very sporty um, and I knew that whatever job I wanted to do I um, I wanted to enjoy it I didn't want to just do it because someone else thought I should be doing that and I I went through schooling but I thought that um, a medical condition I had as a child would prevent me from joining the navy So I'd put it to the back of my mind and thought I couldn't join. And so I went through school, unfortunately, with no real idea of what I wanted to do because I thought the Navy wasn't it. And so I drifted through and simply took subjects that I enjoyed, which eventually led me to do a a sports degree at university um, with a teaching aspect to it. I thought, well, I'll stay involved with sport. Um, But at the back of my mind, I still hankered for the Navy. And it wasn't until I had my first teaching job up in Newcastle in the Northeast. And literally around the corner from my house was a a reserve unit, a Royal Navy Reserves unit. And I thought, well, I'll join the reserves, you know, let's, let's just give it a go. And I thought, you know, the medical condition was back when I was a small child, it surely can't be an issue now. And sure enough, it was, you know, I went through and joined the reserves and then I was stopped by um, a chap who was one of the officers there and he said have you ever ever considered the regulars he said I think you'd be great and I said yes and he said right let's do it and it all just kind of happened Um, so I transferred I'd made it to officer in the reserves and then I transferred um, into uh, the regulars um, and started Dartmouth so I've always known and that's where we met and it was I joined in 99 so um yeah you were there when I was there (laughs) yeah and um just so people who are listening can understand what role did you go into when you transferred into the regulars uh so I was a logistics officer used to be called a supply officer um so a logistics officer is responsible for the operation of a ship at sea be it the stores the HR the money the logistics the uh, everything to the um, allows a ship or a shore unit to function um, and look after its people. And so I know from my experience that women made up 
less than 10%, I think, of the the total workforce. How did you cope with that being a minority in what is traditionally quite a masculine organisation anyway? How did you cope with that? I think I was in a slightly fortuitous position that I didn't join the Navy straight from school or indeed straight from university. So I've got life experience. And in fact, if I hadn't joined then, I would have been too old at the time because there was an age limit. So I was slightly older than my um, peers. Um, I was also very much a tomboy growing up. Um, uh, All my friends were boys. Um, I knew how to interact and engage with boys. I'd got brothers myself. um, And I felt confident with men because I'm not a particularly feminine female, um, which is why I think a lot of people feel intimidated by it. Um, And so I kind of felt that I fitted in. But again, it sounds crazy, but my stature as well. I have height. I have a presence when I walk in. I'm taller than a lot of males and I felt confidence in yeah in my in my stature I think and the experience I came with um, I'd done the reserves um, I knew how it worked um, I as I say I shared a house with a group of boys with men should I say um, and so I felt okay amongst that in some respects it was my concern was more about my confidence to fit in with the females because I know the reaction that females get when they meet me and they do feel and I actually my she she became my my best friend and you probably know her Susie and we shared a cabin together in in um, the first term where you with about 10 other 10 12 other girls and she I went across to her in the first sort of week to give her something or ask her something and she squealed and retreated to a bed and she said no go away no go away I'm scared of you and and she she tells that story now and it's lived with me since then um because yeah so actually it was a complete flip it was the females that I was concerned about confidence with because I knew I I struggled with it that's yeah. so interesting. Um, going back to your point about, yeah, you you absolutely you've got the height and you've got the natural presence, but and I know this from experience being very short, <laughs> that I most women don't have that um instant um no. positive, I suppose. They don't have that leg up already. What what would be your advice then to women who are are stunted <laughs> from a height basis? <laughs> but want to make their mark in a male-dominated world, what soft skills do you think they should be pulling on to have their presence known? I think your body language plays a huge part. Um, And just because you may be shorter or slight and petite, um, which, you know, sadly, a lot of men see that as a fragility and a a failing, um, which it absolutely shouldn't be. I think if you can walk tall and imagine you're taller than you are um, and be you know get your shoulders back have that confidence don't stand at the back or feel you've got to hide behind somebody and go in with that confidence that this is me this is who I am and I've got something to say in a place here just as much as the rest of you and just going back to your point then about confidence around women what did you adjust about yourself in order to fit in with the, the women? Um, in the Royal Navy? 
It's it's a difficult one. And I battled with it all through school, all through university. I was um, I had a bit of a tough time at university, to be honest, um, with the girls. Um, again, the girls were in the minority at my university. It was predominantly men. And obviously I was on a PE course as well, which tended to air towards males as well. So I'd I I had to have confidence that for the right female, I wouldn't scare them. And I knew that I was a kind person, I was a good friend. But if I got to the point in life where I felt if somebody doesn't like me simply because of how I look or the fact that I like sport or the fact that I don't want to wear frilly dresses and have my hair like them, then perhaps they're not the right person for me. And and I have to be satisfied with the fact that I might not have lots of female friends and I'm okay with that. Um, and, and that's what I had to resign myself to. And not everybody at Dartmouth would like me. Um, and that was okay. I think also your message there about I'm okay with that is so important. Certainly the clients I come across who have confidence challenges around they, the way they look or the way they yeah. talk or their accent or whatever it may be, saying I'm okay with that is so important for them to then move on to achieve their goals. But something that many, many struggle with. Was there something that you sort of did? Was there a practice that you got to the point where you were able to be okay with that? I think once I had satisfied myself that I'd done everything I could, and if it came to the point that I had to change my whole being or my morals or the way I looked to try and fit in then that went back to the I know that's wrong and that's not going to feel right for me and it all came back to this what's right for me selfishly or or not some might say Um, but I knew that I didn't want to dress like that and I didn't want to look like that Um, and me as a person is actually okay Um, and that's the point that i just decided, well, you know, that's the way it is. I can't be everything to everybody. Um, I have got some, as I say, Susie, the girl that was scared of me, became my best friend. And it, it was actually interesting because she would tell me from other people's perspective, Susie, you scare them because you can run faster than those boys or, you know, you, you play basketball like a, a Harlem Globetrotter or whatever it might be. They said they find intimidating. And I just said, well, I can't change that. That's me. Um, so, yeah, she was kind of my eyes and ears. <laughs> and do you think that label intimidating gets applied to men as often as it does to women? No, I don't believe it does. Not in my experience. I've been around a lot of men. Um, I think aggressive gets used an awful lot. I've never been called aggressive, um, but I have heard it a lot with men. But interestingly, no, not intimidating. Um, and my husband has always said, you know, he would obviously hear the, hear the gossip and he would say people find you intimidating because of your size, which is which is crazy, really, because there's plenty of tall women around. Um, yeah. So I figured, well, I can't change that. So. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely can't change that. Well, let's move on from the Royal Navy and talk about um, what happened after you left the Royal Navy and you chose to move to Australia, mm. which yes. is a gutsy call. You know, then moving to the other side of the world with uh, two very small children at the time. <laughs> 
how did that come about? What what was going on there that you moved to Australia? Um, I'm a terrible spur of the moment, impulsive type. I just make decisions very quickly. I'm not one to mull over things. And uh, my husband was also serving in the Navy at the time. Um, he'd, uh, he'd become pensionable, so he'd done 25 years. Um, he was a bit bored. He transferred to officer, so he was an SD, so he'd gone through the ranks and just decided that he needed a new challenge. Um, they were pretty much writing off his, his rank and um, uh, branch that he was in as an engineer. Um, and he knew that they wouldn't promote him beyond the next rank. And he thought, well, that's not fair because I've got all these skills. I've got lots to offer. And he'd actually been working with an exchange Australian and an exchange Kiwi. And uh, they talked to him about it. And he said, why don't we do it? And I said, well, if you want to, yeah, why not? And we we often say we don't actually remember the moment that we decided to. But all of a sudden, the ball was rolling and he was being transferred to the um, Aussie Navy and um, I said yeah let's go. So talk me to, through how you started your life in Australia and, and what led you to founding your own PR company. Yeah so just prior to sort of the year or so before we came to Australia because the process took an awful long time um, for it to actually happen and so I took on um, a job uh, I was working for Tesco's, which is a big supermarket chain like Coles and Woolies, and I was doing some compliance management for them. And I had a pretty awful experience, no flexibility around. I'd got a um, you know young child at the time, and Johnny was uh, serving away, and I was on my own. I'd got no family around, and it was so stressful. Um, and I, it had happened twice. I'd had two jobs in the time before since leaving the Navy and since going overseas. And I decided never again do I want to do that. So when we landed in Australia, again, no family, um, didn't know a soul. Uh, I'd never even been to Australia, which was the amusing thing. And I decided, I thought, oh, and my youngest was only three months old. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll take a bit of maternity leave this time because I hadn't with my eldest and um, it just didn't work out like that. I, I was itching to do something and I didn't know anybody either. So I started connecting locally and I, I actually started selling greetings cards and stationery at little markets and just, just for the fun of doing something and meeting people. And that sort of grew. And, um, and then I got chatting to some local retailers and they said, um, would you help us do some marketing? And I said, well, sure, but I can't come and work for you. I've got no childcare. I've got two young children, um, but I can work remotely for you and flexibly. And that was the start of it. And a lady took me on on contract for 10 hours a week, flexibly. Um, I grew her business, did marketing, did PR for her um, all around the little ones. And, and yeah, and then word of mouth from then on. And all of a sudden I had about five or six clients and I thought I better do this properly. Um, I didn't even have a business name. I didn't have a website, nothing. <laughs> so how did you learn how to do all this? How did you go from standing start to now running your own company? <laughs> yeah, interesting. My final two jobs in the, in the Navy um, involved marketing and PR. 
So I was, uh, you probably remember Navy Days. Mm-hmm. Um, so I project managed Navy Days and I also um, led the Pay As You Dime project um, in Portsmouth and ended up helping Plymouth and Coldrose and some of the other areas do it as well. And it involved marketing, both internal communications as well as external. And I worked alongside um, a civilian marketing company, branding company, uh, the PR company in the dockyard and learned lots and realized I really enjoyed this. And I ended up wanting to do all of that rather than what I should have been doing um, with the with the rest of the project. And, uh, and yeah, and then I I then dabbled. And I then <laughs> forgot about this. I then started a company before I uh, when I first came out of the military, uh, helping ex-military to find work. So I ran a recruitment agency purely for ex-military and I had to market that myself and I did PR and that. And I literally learned, I kid you not, from the Marketing for Dummies book. I read that cover to cover, um, drew on the experience I'd had and then I just did it. And so when I came to Australia and I started helping these other people, all first of all, all I did was offer them ideas um, you know, this is classic me. I had I had the confidence to do that underneath. I was absolutely, you know, scared stiff that I'd get it wrong, but it worked. And the more I did it, the more confidence I had um, to keep doing it. And obviously I kept learning on the job and I connected with lots of people. Um, I partnered with a, um, a publicist who'd been doing it for many years. She was very experienced at doing PR and I learned heaps from her. And in fact, we still work together on projects now. And yeah, I just kept doing it. It was practical, hands-on experience. And yeah, I just had to keep doing it, forcing myself to do it, to give myself that confidence to know that I could, because I had a real hang up about, I didn't go to university and learn PR or marketing. Who's going to take me seriously? And it did hinder me initially because I, I didn't charge correctly. Um, you would be astounded at what I charged for my services initially. And I also shied away from some projects because I thought, what if they find me out? You know, I'm a fraud. I've not been taught this. I just instinctively know how to do it. And it took me a long time to get over that. Um, But once I had, it was like, no, actually, I can do this just as good as someone with a piece of paper from university. And you said, you said, People might find me out. I might be found out as a fraud. Is really common, particularly amongst women mm. that think I'm not good enough. Somebody's yeah. better than me. Did you have anybody help you through that process in terms of a mentor or a coach yourself, or was it all your own self help? Um, a little bit. So a lot of it was self help, and I happened to take on a mentor in about my second year of business. And his partner was a, a sort of confidence coach almost. Um, and But she she tended to deal with employed women and she was helping middle management females. And she invited me to a workshop she was doing. And as I say, not entirely appropriate for me because I was a business owner and these were all professional corporate women. But what it did do, it came out, as you say, exactly the same. There was these, what I felt almost intimidated by them, booted and spurred, you know, highly manicured women um, coming into the room, uh, you know, working for big banks and insurance companies and the like. And there's little old me with my 
little home business. Um, and she, it, it came out that they all had these same confidence issues or doubts about themselves, um, about whether they were good enough and whether they should be there and could they make, make the next step up. Um, one of them, a very small, petite lady, the same issues with stature, walking into a room. She said, I feel intimidated because I'm tiny and everybody else I work with is male and, and tall. And she said that instantly intimidates me. And many women I talk to comment on an inner voice you know, that you're not good enough in one ear or, you know, you're not tall enough or whatever it may be. You're not qualified enough. Do you have an inner voice? Yeah. Oh, yes, definitely. I, I, I run through things in my head all of the time. And every time I have a new lead that I feel I'm not good enough to take on, I have to have that chat. I've got one booked in this week and I've been like mulling over it and stressing over it for the last few days because it's, you know, it's potentially a big client if I win it. But all it is, is I doubt that I can do it even though I know I can. I do it day in, day out. They're no different. But sometimes I feel intimidated when I feel that they are bigger or better or more professional or more experienced than me in, in their own field. You know, they're not publicists. He's, um, he's in real estate, for example. But for some reason, I put that person on this pedestal and then it immediately affects my confidence. Um, and yeah, the self-talk just starts. It's like, stop. He's approached you because he needs what you've got. You know, you've got something to offer him. You can do this. You've done it before. And it just goes on and on. Yeah. I'm really glad you then talked around what you do and your strategies for dealing with that. Is there anything else you can share with us around that? So, yes, absolutely. Recognize it's there and have a conversation with yourself. But how do you manage that voice? I refer back to other instances of where this has happened. And I go back to how I felt and how I felt afterwards. Um, and that really helps me. I'm quite, I visualize a lot. So when I'm, um, <laughs> when I go running, if before a big race, I'm always nervous, I have to visualize the end and it helps me get over the nerves at the start. And it's the same with a client. If I start to feel nervous that I can't do something, I have to visualize one of my successes and how I felt after I've got over that. I also refer back to somebody I met when I first came to Australia and I completely idolized her and thought she was amazing what she did and she was doing what I wanted to do um, and I felt she'd got it made. And we actually ended up being friends and I got to know her well and we worked on projects together and I saw the behind the scenes of this person who I thought was way, way, way above me. And the, the reality was she wasn't. We, we were, you know, she was no different to me. It was just the, the image she'd put out. And I guess the confidence she exuded, um, you know, probably part of her branding, everything else. But I always refer back to that and think she was never what you thought. And this is the same with these other situations. You're, this is all in your head. He's not turned around and said to me, I'm better than you and I'm great and I'm this. You've said all of that. None of that is proven to be true. And until it's proven to be true, you can do it. It's all my own, my own invention. 
I love that. That's great. Thank you. So what do you think the key to your success is? Because you're clearly doing very well. <laughs> what is the key to that? What is the key? Um, a few things. I guess resilience and the ability to keep going, even if something's difficult or challenging um, to think. I always think it's not insurmountable. You'll get through this. It's, you know, there's an end to it. Um, consistency, uh, most definitely. And I, I'm being organized, I think. To, to operate your own business, you have to be organized. I'm very process driven anyway, probably a bit of my military background. Um, but I've always been like that as a child, very organized. And I guess they're all sort of important. And, and then, you know, the whole purpose of this podcast, confidence, you've got to have confidence in yourself um, because no one else will have that confidence in you if you can't, you know, step up and show it for yourself. Um, so, yeah, I guess confidence is important. And one of the things I want to ask you around is in your bio, you say you're helping people make their mark on the world. So thinking of your female clients, what gets in the way for them and what stops them making their mark on the world? Oh, thinking that who's going to listen to them? Why? So in terms of media, why why would anyone want to know about me? I actually get asked that a lot. But why, why would anyone want to read my story? Uh, other people have done it before. So why would they want to read mine? Or but there's heaps of people out there doing it much better than me. So why would they want? It's always this, but why would it be me? They don't see the value in what they've got to offer. They don't see the stories in what they're doing. And obviously that's where I come in. And I've had clients cry when they read the story that I've written for them and they get so emotional over it. And they say, is that me? I say, yes, that's you. I've just interviewed you. And that's what I've pulled out from you. And they can't see it for themselves. And if they can't see it for themselves, how are they ever going to shout about it and tell other people about it? And that's where I want to help them make that mark and show them, yes, you are valuable. You are important. You have got something to offer. And you need to share that because you will probably inspire so many other people, so many other women by sharing that story. And if you don't, no one will ever know. Mm. So you're taking your clients not only on a journey of of PR, but also some confidence building, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, quite often. And interestingly, it's the females. You know, I don't get asked that by the males. They don't doubt. They just want to know, I want to be on TV and I want to do this. that's, That's all they're interested in. Whereas the women, it's always, but what, what's my story? I haven't got a story. Oh, yes, why, why is that? Why should there be such a marked difference between the genders? Yeah, I, I don't know. Men feel entitled to it, feel that that it's it's their right. And, and of course I'm great. And of course I've got something to share. And everyone's going to want what I've got and hear what I've got to say. But women don't think like that. Mm. I need to get a guest on here that can talk me through the biological reasons why male and female approach confidence in a different way so if anybody's listening and wants to help me um, please send me an email Um, I also want to talk about something you you use as your mantra and I really want to pull this apart so I'm going to read it to you you say every morning you have two choices you can continue to sleep with your dreams or you wake up run and chase them (laughs) tell me the story behind that Susie because all the way through life, uh, I feel that 
you you could take an easy option. You could lie in bed and, and not do very much. I could have come to Australia and just found myself a part-time job stacking shelves in Woolies if I wanted to. That that was my choice. Um, I chose not to do that because I knew that wouldn't fulfill me, it wouldn't challenge me. I wanted more and I felt I'd got more to offer. But I could have taken that easy option. Equally, um, I could have um, stopped doing my training because it was very difficult when I came to Australia with two little ones. You can't go to the gym. What, what do I do? How do I find the time to do this? There was lots of choices through life. And I feel you've got those two paths and you can take that easy one or you can actually get on with it, get out, go and do what you need to do, what's going to make you a better person, make you feel a better person, fulfill you and give you a life that you can look back on and reflect and think, I lived it as fully as I could. I achieved what I wanted to achieve. You may not have achieved everything, but you ticked off so many things, you know, like people have bucket lists. But I sort of break it into, I have these moments in life where I've got choices um, and I'm all for making that right choice. And it's quite often, it is the hard one. You've got to get up, get out of bed, run and chase them. They're not going to land in your lap. And then if you stay in bed, you're not going to catch them. And what or who drives you? Where does this drive come from? Oh, good question. I don't know. Where does it come from? Uh, I don't know. Part of it, I have a, an auntie, so my mum's sister, who's always kind of inspired me with her drive. She's a very get up and go lady, always has been. Uh, we're very close and our conversations right from childhood have always been right what's your next project what are you doing now what are you doing and she's the same she's in her 70s now you would not believe it um you know she's still so active she volunteers like all over the place so I guess she inspired me to always do have something and go after things um even if others weren't doing it or people thought I was a bit weird because I was doing that and it wasn't what everyone else was doing. Um, but I, I I don't know. I As I say, I was very independent as a child. I didn't have a great childhood in terms of parenting. So a lot of what I did was to escape that and to make sure that, um, you know, I could grow up and have something because I wasn't going to get it from family. And actually, as soon as I could, I was out of there and left home. Um, and so I had to stand on my own two feet. Otherwise, I would have ended up homeless and in a gutter, potentially. Um, so I guess maybe it was learned from childhood and it's just carried on. But I almost, I don't like having to rely on anybody. Um, my husband hates it when I, everything is planned on the premise that he's not here. Because I've got to imagine he's not here. Because if he's away, I've got to do everything myself. And that's how, what I apply to every situation. I'm on my own. What do I do? How do I fix this? How do I achieve this? And so everything comes back to me, which can be quite exhausting sometimes, but um, that's the way I see it. And I've got to have that um, in the back of my head all the time. And when things are exhausting, uh, to quote back at you, what do you do to unwind? <laughs> Run. <laughs> that's more exhausting, surely. <laughs> A lot of people say that, but I can't. If you're not a runner, I totally get you won't get this and you'll think I'm strange. But I find running the most relaxing thing. 
It's the only time my brain completely switches off. It's clear um, because I've got a lot of talk going on in my head and a busy mind. And I can honestly say I can run for hours and I run distance and I will not have thought of anything. It's it's this complete meditation. Um, and I think, you know, I work heavily on my strength work so that running doesn't hurt. You know, everyone says, oh, your knees. No, I don't have knee pain. Um, I just have this lovely flow and just enjoy it. Uh, and yeah, and when things are stressful, you know, I've posted on my feed a lot. You know, if Gladys says we're in two weeks lockdown, I go and run um, because I don't need to hear all of that. It's doom and gloom. I need to switch off. And that's the only way I can switch off. I really like the when you say you just go with the flow of running and and you're almost silenced, your brain sort of zones yeah. out. And I've interviewed a number of people on this podcast who through other means, whether that's yoga or mindfulness or meditation, have said the same thing. It's so important to them as a busy working woman or busy working woman mm-hmm. who's also a mum, this silence yeah. to just be with yourself, essentially. Yes. And and I urge every woman to find that. It took me a long time to discover what my meditation was. People tried to get me to do yoga, to meditate, I couldn't do it. Like I have no patience and I still can't do yoga. Um, it drives me bonkers. And as soon as I discovered the power of running um, and, and what it did for my brain, it is so much better. Like I can't, I couldn't drive in the car with the radio on because I felt this input was just too much. And I wasn't listening to a word of it because my head was trying to take over um, and it was it was just noise, and I have to switch it off. And my kids would be saying, "Mom, oh, this is the radio." I can't. Seriously, I can't. I can feel my blood pressure rising. You've got to switch it off. Um, yeah, and and so it's the running really has helped me. It's yeah, it's the only time I switch off. And I'd urge everybody to find that. Don't feel you've got to do yoga or you've got to do meditation. It could be something completely different to everybody else. Um, but that's my meditation. And you've got a big run coming up, is that right? Yeah, I've got a couple. We're still waiting to see whether, uh, so I've got one in Canberra, but we don't know whether we can cross borders because I'm in New South Wales. So there's one there. um, And then I've got a couple. um, I was meant to have another one in November as well that I'm organising for a charity, but I've just literally just reset the date for that um, early next year. Um, But yeah, normally I have sort of, three maybe four big races and then a few shorter ones in between (laughs) you do these for charity not always this particular one I do um so I did it last year in lockdown and it was meant to be this year as well so this is my own organized race that I do but no I enter um and compete in other races for my own satisfaction (laughs) We're we're in peace and quiet yes yes indeed so in the sort of the final minutes of this podcast There'll be people who are listening who think, oh, I'm actually really interested in what Susie does and how she can help me. How can people track you down, Susie? Um, Well, you can find me on my website, um, hullabaloopr.com.au. That's probably the easiest place. Find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, Susie Campbell. I don't think there's many of us. Um, You'll see my picture on there. I'm very happy to connect and chat or talk about any aspect of business really whether it be PR and marketing or just female business owners and then finally 
what would be your one piece of advice for women who are listening who are lacking confidence right now? What would you advise them? I would say to them to have those um, scenarios in your head, a bit like I always refer back to certain situations and have two or three um, times when you've lacked confidence, but you've perhaps done it anyway, or a time when you've achieved something that you perhaps doubted yourself in and have those moments to refer back to. Put them on a sticky note, write them on a board, have them or do a little mood board, whatever it does to keep it front and centre um, to remind you that, yes, you have done this or can do this. Um, and and as I say, I always I always refer to the feelings, how I felt. It's not the words or the visual, it's how I felt. Um, even t- sometimes the smells um, is, is what I recall from a situation. So that's what I would probably do. And it just gives you that boost of, yeah, okay, I I have done that before. And then know that it's going to feel okay afterwards. But if if you don't try, you're never going to get to that point. Love it. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Susie, for joining me on the podcast. My Um, pleasure. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Women in Confidence. And I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then please like it, share it, comment on it, and if you want to, sponsor it. If you'd like to take part in my podcast or know somebody who would make a perfect guest, then please email me on contact at vanessa-murphy.com. That's contact at vanessa-murphy.com. Until next time.